Okay. So, you know, so usually when it comes to uh, these shirin that we give uh, monthly, so I usually, I usually, uh, you know, give, give sort of the introduction that every single month in the Jewish year is not just a time that we go through when there's particular days, you know, that maybe are highlighted or, or unique, whether they be, you know, Yom Tovim or God forbid, you know, the opposite of Yantif. Though every month has its own personality, every month has its own nature and its own avayda that is highlighted by those particular days in the month. But the entire month is pictured by that, and, and the, every month has its own personality and identity. And one of the ways I, I mention this usually is that one of the ways to sort of pinpoint the nature of the month is based on uh, a principle that we find in the Sefer Yitzira. Sefer Yitzira is the book of creation. It's one of the most ancient of, uh, of Svarim that we have. It goes back to Avram Avinu already. So in the Sefer Yitzira, it says that every single month is connected to a particular letter of the Aleph base. And so if you identify the letter and understand the nature of that letter, that will shed light on the month. And, and through that, shed light on what our vayda is, what are we supposed to be focusing on and how we're supposed to be growing in that particular month. So in the month of Av, it's Rosh so the month of Av also has a letter. What is the letter of the month of Av? So in the Sefer Yitzir, the book of creation, the Avram Avinu reveals to us the following thing. It says over there, Himlech Ois Tes Av, that the letter of the month of Av is a letter test. The letter test, okay? Ninth letter of the Av phase. Now, what is significant about the letter test? Let's begin to unravel it. In the Zara Kaddish, we're taught, also, the Zara doesn't necessarily connect the letters to the months, but the Zara in one particular place is talking about the letters of the Aleph base. And the Zara talks about the letter test. The Zara says that the, the essence of the letter test is with the following sentence, Tuve ganiz begave. The letter test symbolizes and is reflective of an idea, of the following idea, of Tuve ganiz begave, of there being goodness hidden within it. Notice if you could imagine the letter test, like if you imagine, uh, use your imagination, the letter test could look like a, like a cup, or like a receptacle, where one of the rims of the cup is sort of like tilted within, almost as if hinting, like an arrow pointing to inside, as if it looks like an empty cup, it looks like an empty vessel. There's something hidden within it. There's a goodness that's hidden within it. So this is the nature of the letter test. Tuve gones begave, a hidden good, a good that's hidden within it. And that's the essence of the month of Av. Now, on a very simple level, we understand that, you know, the month of Av on the outside, you know, superficially is a difficult month. It's a time of, of Golis. It's when we, you know, mourn the base of Megdish and so on. Mishnech Nasav, Mimat and Besimcha. But on the other hand, there is this like strange paradoxical relationship we have with Tisha B'Av in general, which is that on the one hand, again, on the outside, it's, it's empty of light and it's empty of goodness. But on the other hand, we know that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the birthday of Mashiach. And at some level, Chazal says such a thing, that when Mashiach comes, Tisha B'Av is going to be the greatest of holidays. So that's not just a prediction of what's going to be in the future. The fact that the month of Av is related to the letter Tess, which means goodness hidden within it, means that whatever Tisha B'Av is going to be, is, it is already, it's just hidden within it. And so, and so we have to begin to unpackage this. What exactly is this goodness that is hidden within Tisha B'Av? And like everything in life, it's not just something to sit back passively and wait for it to happen. We have to actively connect to it even right now. So despite the fact that Tisha B'Av, as it is right now, is not a holiday per se, but we have to believe that there's a goodness within it. 
And that goodness that's within Tisha B'Av and within the month of Av is going to become apparent with the coming of Mashiach. But it's right now, just like the letter test, goodness hidden within it. That goodness is hidden within Tisha B'Av as well. We have to identify what that is and, and how to figure out a way to, at the same time, relate to Tisha B'Av in the form that it is right now. And at the same time, understand and recognize the goodness that's within it. That's going to be the objective over here. Okay. Now, one other piece of the puzzle with the letter Tess is as follows. Um, there's, there's, a, there's another principle that we find in the Svarim in order to identify the nature of a particular letter of the Aleph base is to look at the first place in Chumash where it's mentioned. The first place that it's mentioned. So where in Chumash, what word, you know, what, what's the, the first place that the letter Tess appears? So the first place the letter Tess appears, you don't have to go too far. It says in Pasuk, when Hashem created the world, the first day of creation, so Hashem created light. Let there be light. And there was light. And it says, Hashem is the light that He created on the first day, and it was good. That word goodness associated with light, that's the first place the letter test is mentioned. It means that if you want to identify, therefore, the essence, the essence of the letter test, and specifically the goodness that's contained in the letter test, it's light. It's light. So we're again, we're slowly but surely putting together, you know, sort of a picture of what the letter test represents and the month of Av created by the letter test, what the month of Av is. And so what we see is the following thing, is that the letter test represents something that on the outside is empty and barren, but on the inside is full of goodness. And we've now further identified what is this goodness that we're talking about. The goodness we're talking about is light. And so, to say it more clearly, what does the letter test mean? The letter test means something on the outside is the opposite of light, but yet light is contained within it. Now the truth is, this is exactly, this is exactly, um, you know, what, what we're going to see, what we're going to learn is exactly the, the nature of exile itself, of Gauls itself, of what the month of Av is about. In the book of, of Eicha, for example, try to follow the bouncing ball a little bit. So in the book of Eicha, so it says in Eicha, that's for some of the older, uh, that reference. So the, uh, in the book of Eicha, it says like this, In describing, in describing Gaulus, the nature of exile itself, of us being kicked out of Eretz Yisrael, it describes Gaulus in the book of Eicha, to be placed in darkness. So already darkness is synonymous with exile. And so the letter test, again, what does letter test mean? Letter test means you look at it, dark. But there's light within it. And so this is, this is telling us the nature of exile. That Gullus itself, although on the outside, seems to be an experience of darkness. You've placed me in darkness. But the letter test tells you that specifically the month which is all about exile, that month is connected with letter test, and letter test says that although on the outside it looks dark and empty, there is a goodness contained within it, and what specifically is the nature of this goodness that's hidden within the darkness of exile, the nature of the good that's hidden within the darkness of exile is light itself. Okay, so that's all the backdrop, okay? You don't have to remember all of that. Now let's talk about a little bit, you know, something a little bit on the side, and then we'll, Hashem, we'll, we'll get back to that very, very soon. Okay, so that's 
introduction number one, introduction number two. Don't worry, it's not going to be that, 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 that long. So it's like this. In last week's Parsha, there's a very, very interesting story at the end of, uh, the end of Parsha's Matas. It talks about over there, Klai Yisrael are holding by, by the end of Parsha's Matas, we're, we're right at the footsteps of Eretz Yisrael, right on the other side of the Jordan River, Eivar Hayardin, and we're uh, ready to go into Eretz Yisrael. So the Pasuk says a whole fascinating story that two and a half Shvatim come to Moshe Rabbeinu. Ruvain, God, and half of Menashe come to Moshe Rabbeinu, and they say the following, uh, the following request. They say as follows, <coughs> that, that uh, they say basically us, ourselves, Ruvain, God, and half of Menashe, we have a lot of cattle, and we see over here that the land that we're, that we're settling in, that we're, that, we're, that we're situated in on the other side of Eretz Yisrael, has a lot of grazing area for our cattle. It seems to be a good shidduch, so you want to stay here. That's the request. Moshe Rabbeinu says to Bnei Gad Meruvain and half of Menashe, this smells like the Maraglan. You're rejecting the land. You should be going to Eretz Yisrael. You're rejecting the land. Not only are you going to, by, by doing this, you're, you yourselves are rejecting the land. You're going to cause fear. And you, you know, you're going to plant the seed of, of, of uh, rebelliousness. And the rest of Kali Yisrael, this is a bad idea. So Bnei Gad Meruvain and half of Menashe respond to Moshe Rabbeinu and say, no, no, we're not rejecting Eretz Yisrael. Adra, but we love Eretz Yisrael. So much so, We'll make the following deal. The deal will be that when the Jewish people, the rest of our brothers, go into the mainland of Eretz Yisrael and to, to try to conquer and to fight all the enemies, we'll go first. We'll be our soldiers, the soldiers from Reuven, Gad, and Hev Menashe, will be on the front lines. That's how much we care about Eretz Yisrael. So we just, we just feel that this land over here on the other side of the Jordan is more appropriate for us and for our, for our needs. But it's not, we're not rejecting Eretz Yisrael. So Moshe hears this, and Moshe says, fine. Moshe says the following thing. So fine, it, if that's what you want to do, then that's, that's the deal. That's the deal. I will give you this land of Eva Hayard and the other side of the Jordan, but with a condition. The condition is, like you said, that you go uh, to conquer the mainland of Israel, you go first, and your soldiers are on the front lines. If you do that, then you'll get this portion for yourselves. If you don't fulfill that, that condition, again, because Moshe knows he's going to pass away, so he's not going to be there. You know, to be able to, to enforce it. But again, he commands Yeshua Benun about this. And if they don't fulfill their deal, then, you know, the, the, their condition, then the deal's off. And then uh, they don't have any more right to this land than anyone else. That's the, that's the deal that Moshe Rabbeinu makes. Now, it's interesting. The, the Chazal say the following idea. Chazal say that we learn from this negotiation of Moshe Rabbeinu with Ruven, God, and half of Menashe, we learn a very important halacha. The halacha that we learn is whenever a business transaction is made, right? So let's say, you know, I don't know, let's say you're buying a car, right? So you go to the, the guy selling his car, whatever it is, or she's selling her car, and you say, okay, we'll make a deal, we're going to buy the car, fine, you give money, and so on, regular. So the Gemara says as follows, a very important halacha, which is that if you're making a business transaction, again, whether it be a car, a house, whatever the case may be, a car to milk, you're making a business transaction, if you stipulate a, a, a condition in the context of that deal, the condition has to fit the type of condition that Moshe made with Reuven, God, and half of Menashe. In other words, if you take a look at the Pasuk, you don't have this inside, but uh, if you take a look at the Pasuk, the way Moshe Rabbeinu stipulated the condition with Reuven, God, and half of Menashe was very particular. First, he said the negative and then the positive. In other words, first he said, if you don't 
fulfill the condition of going ahead in the army in, in front lines, the deal is off. If you go ahead, then the deal is on. So first he said the negative and then the positive. He also said the condition before the business transaction. He said, if you go ahead of your brothers, then this land is yours. Right? He didn't say the land is yours if you go ahead. There were certain details that he made and certain styles that he used in expressing this, the condition with the deal. Says the Gemara, we have a tradition, that any time a business deal is made and you want to establish a condition with it to, you know, to sort of uh, rein it in or, or to manipulate it, the condition has to model the style that Moshe Benu used. In other words, even if it's very clear what your intention is, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's obvious what you're trying to say, but if what you say, if what comes out of your mouth in buying that car or buying that carton of milk, if the condition you're trying to set on that business transaction is not exactly the words that come out of your mouth, or is not exactly how Moshe Rabbeinu formulated his condition, then con- the condition is, is uh, irrelevant, the condition is null and void, and all that remains is a business transaction. So even though, it's interesting, even though the buyer and the seller, we know what you mean. Like, we get it. We understand what you're trying to say. But you're not saying it properly. As Moshe Rabbeinu formulated it, then the condition is null and void, and it's irrelevant. So if, let's say, the condition that you make is, let's say, I'm buying the car, but the condition is that I should, uh, I should be able to, um, you know, the, I don't know, whatever. The, the condition is, I'll buy this car on condition that you uh, uh, do carpool for me for the next month, whatever it is. If you, uh, that's where the head is, you know? So when, if you... That would be a nice thing. So if you, if you formulate that condition improperly, even if the seller of the car, like we, we know what you're trying to say, but you're not saying it properly, the way Moshe Rabbeinu said it, so to speak, then that condition is irrelevant. You know what I mean? And then the transaction is made without that condition being, uh, you know, uh, having any, any hold on the transaction. That's the interesting halacha that we learn from that whole story. So let's understand. We have, we have, there's a lot of parts of this story that we have to break down. First of all, I mean, what does it mean, B'nai Gadu, B'nai Ruvin, Hefa, B'nai for 40 years, you know, you're dreaming about the land. It's all about Eretz Yisrael. From the beginning, from Yitzhak's time, it's all about Eretz Yisrael. And now you're finally there, and you're not rejecting the land. But yet, you're, you, you don't want to live there because you have a lot of cattle and this. Like, come on, I mean, the, the God will work it out. I mean, the, the, that's, the, that's the issue. How could it be such a thing? What were they thinking? What were they thinking? What does it mean for us? And why is it that specifically these halachas of, of conditions and how to verbalize conditions and, you know, in business transactions is learned out from this scenario? And what does it have to do with us? Okay, fine. Let's put that to the side. Now let's begin to learn. Okay. So it's like this. There is a very uh, elemental, simplistic, and mistaken, really, uh, way of viewing what exile is, what Gullus is. The, the, the way that we usually think about exile, the nature of Gullus, is the following thing, and, uh, which is as follows. Really, we're supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael. Really, we're supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael. We're supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael, based on Migdash, finished. We're not supposed to be speaking English. We should be speaking Hebrew. We should be eating falafel all day. That's the way it's supposed to be. No, problem is we're bad boys and girls. So Hashem, therefore, decided to punish us. What's the punishment? So the biggest punishment uh, that you can give to a child is kicking them out of the house. So that's what Hashem did. We were so bad that Hashem just kicked us out of the house. And the hope is 
that's, that the purpose of punishments is to uh, get the kid to, uh, to ship up, right? Ship up or shape out, or, uh, ship up or ship out, right? There you go. So that's what Hashem is trying to do. So what's the problem? First of all, I mean, there's a lot of problems. First of all, anyone that has a Jewish heart uh, would feel incredibly disturbed about thinking of their banishment in such a way as being a parent, a loving parent who, who resorts to that final measure of kicking the kid out of the house. That's a, it's a horrible thing to do. And it's, uh, it's, it's almost never a good idea. So, so a Jewish mother, a Jewish father, would, their instincts would tell them that that's a bad idea. So you're talking about the one that created the Jewish instincts. Doesn't think that's a bad idea. More than that, it doesn't seem to be productive. Have we gotten better since being kicked out of the house? I mean, the whole purpose of getting kicked out is, you know, you know, ship up and, you know, work yourself to do tshuva and so on. Have we been getting better? So it doesn't seem to be working. So it's one thing for a person to be, you know, to make a mistake. And then they're stubborn about it. They keep on doubling down at the mistake. We're talking about God. So first of all, he doesn't make mistakes. Number two, if there's such an idea that something's not working out, Hashem is humble enough to admit it, then he'll, and he'll fix it. So uh, to think of goals in such a way is, um, is just, it's just underdeveloped. It's underdeveloped. <clears throat> so let's, let's better identify what Golas is. <clears throat> the Rabbanu made the world, the Rabbanu made the world, and when he made the world, he had a goal in mind. He had a goal in mind. And when he created the world, there are two, there are two distinct categories of people that Hashem made. There's Yidin, the Jewish people, and there's the rest of the world. Obviously, within Yidin, you could break it down. Men and women, Kain Levi Yisrael, different Shvatim and so on, and the nations of the world obviously can be broken down in different categories. But in a general big picture, Yidin and the nations of the world. And there are two locations in the world. That's called Eretz Yisrael. That's obviously for Kal Yisrael. And Chutz Laaretz. That's for the nations of the world. These two, these two categories that Hashem created are both purposeful, they're both meaningful, and nothing, neither one of them is just a throwaway. Hashem created the world for the purpose of having a deep, intimate, almost unspeakable and unknowable bond with the Jewish people. The Rabbani Shalom wants the Jewish people, we're called Hashem's Kala, the Rabbani Shalom wants the Jewish people to be, you know, I'll give an example. Not this past Shabbos, two Shabbos ago, my wife and I, we were in uh, Vermont for a Shabbos. So for Shabbos we spent Vermont, we, we spent it with the, the Shliach, uh, the Lubavitcher Shliach in Vermont, Rabbi um, uh, uh, Raskin, Rabbi Raskin, yeah, his father, Rabbi Raskin. So I, I was there uh, by the Kiddush after davening, so, you know, I played a little bit dumb. So I asked him, what was it like being by Febregen by Lubavitcher Rebbe? And for a good 30 seconds, he, he couldn't answer. He was like looking for the words, looking for, for what to say, how to describe it. And after a few seconds like that, I said, you said everything I need to know. The Rabbanu Shalom's relationship with the Jewish people is so profound and so deep, and he wants it to be so profound and so deep that there's no word. It's, it, we shouldn't be able to articulate it. We shouldn't be able to articulate it. It has to just be something that if you ask a Jew, like, what does God mean to you? What does it mean to be a Yid? 
who are you vis-a-vis the Rabbanu Shalom, you shouldn't be able to find the words. It should just, you shouldn't be able to find the words. That's the Rabbanu Shalom's relationship with the Jewish people. And there's one place on earth that is most conducive to develop such an experience, and that's called Eretz Yisrael. But that's in terms of the Rabbanu Shalom with us, and in terms of the Rabbanu Shalom with us in the land. But what about the guy? What about the guy? So the guy are not just there. So again, as kids, we're taught the guy are just there to cause us problems. Right? That, that's really all they're there for, and that's all they do. They're just bad and evil, and they just like cause problems. There's a significant portion of Gaim like that, that's true, and the significant portion of our people's history was dealing with that, but that's not... We say in davening every single day, by Elaine, it's the last, last part of davening, is that we accept upon, as a Jewish people, we accept upon ourselves, to establish the whole world as the kingdom of Hashem. See, there's two separate things. The Jewish people with the Rabbanu Shalom, are described as like a husband and wife, a chasen and kal. A husband and wife should not see themselves as a king or a queen and a subject. That's not a healthy marriage. Chasen and kal. But then there's the Rabbanu Shalom in terms of the rest of the world. In terms of the rest of the world, l'sakin oilam, b'mal chushakit. The Rabbanu should be considered to be a king. See, a king is, if you, a king is, if you ask the subjects to describe your relationship with the king, that's a type of relationship that can be articulated. It's not. Hopefully, it shouldn't be one that uh, is full of dread and misery. It's beautiful and it's amazing if you have a good leader and a king and he's benevolent and he's helpful and you have and the king the king uh, uh, creates a system in which everyone has purpose and everyone has space to find themselves and discover themselves and he protects everyone. It's a beautiful thing, but that can be articulated. The, the role, what the Rabbanu Shalom wants is for the Jewish people to be his kala and for the rest of the world to be his subjects. Now, the Rabbanu Shalom's plan is, and it's ironic, the Rabbanu Shalom's plan is, is that as the king, the king doesn't necessarily have direct contact with the subjects. That's what the king is. The definition of a king is a personality that's transcendent, that's above. The Rabbanu Shalom wants the Jewish people to have two roles. To on the one hand be the Kala of the Rabbanu Shalom, to be able to just be pulsating with Hashem's presence and not to be able to, be able to that we shouldn't even, even be able to articulate what God means to us and what Yiddishkeit means to us. But at the same time, the Rabbanu Shalom also charges us with what? With figuring out a way to communicate to the nations of the world, and to introduce God as, as, as the king to the nations of the world. So our role is dual. We have a personal relationship with God, but we also have a responsibility, and we all are familiar with this, it's one of the most famous psukim, it's usually translated into English, that our job is to be an arla gayim, a light unto the nations. It's being a light unto the nations. A light unto the nations means that it, it means it, it, what that sentence, it's a Pasuk and Navi, that sentence communicates two things. It tells you, first of all, that there's a purpose for the Gaim. The Rabbanu Shalom wants, wants something over there. On the other hand, and what you also see is that the ones that are responsible to communicate that somehow are us. And so the Rabbanu Shalom wants this, the, the, the picture of the world that the, the Rabbanu Shalom has in mind is this. The Jewish people 
being just completely enraptured with God's presence. Almost to the point of where we're not able to speak about it or even articulate it. And then you have the rest of the world also part of Hashem's malchus. Not maybe to the intensity level as the Jewish people, and not as, to the, to, as, as much as the, the intimate level of the Jewish people, but part of Hashem's malchus. The Rabbanu wants every single non-Jew. And I'm not talking about people, non-Jews becoming Yidin. I'm not talking about conversion. I'm talking about remaining as Goyim. What the Rabbanu wants is that every single person, whether it be someone from England, France, Venezuela, to the Congo, the Congo doesn't exist anymore, whatever, the Amazon rainforest, the Rabbanu, as long as there's one human being on planet Earth, that doesn't know who God is and doesn't know about the, the God of the Jewish people, the Malchus, the kingdom of Hashem, is deficient and is missing. And the role of the Jewish people is not only to be Hashem's Kala, but also to be the ones to establish Hashem's Malchus. And the definition of a healthy kingdom is all-encompassing. If you have a country that has a kingdom, but there's one particular corner of the country that's rebelling against the king, or that's unaware of it being part of the Malchus, guess what? That means the kingdom is deficient. So for the Malchus of Hashem to be complete, it has to encompass all countries, all peoples, all nationalities. It doesn't mean they all become Yidin. But as Goyim, they have to become that. So there is a plan A for how this happens, and there's a plan B. Plan A for how this happens is the following way, which is, we stay in Eretz Yisrael. We are just pulsating with God's presence to such a degree that automatically the world around us, without us actually having to interact with them, and without, on their terms, without us having to actually interface with them, you know, on a low, on a low level, they're automatically attracted to us. Like, for example, I mean, this is a bad marshal, but let's say like a, like a moth to a flame. The flame doesn't have to, you know, make like commercials, you know what I mean, to get the moth to come to them. The, the, the flame is just doing its thing. It's just being a flame. It automatically... Moths are attracted to that. Plan A would be that we as a people are so intensely good at being Hashem's kala that automatically, and, and that's in Eretz that automatically the rest of the world would be just magnetically drawn to us. And we had at least a taste of this. There was a momentary taste. And that was during the times of the Beis HaMikdash and specifically under the reign of Shlomo HaMelech. The Pasuk describes that Shlomo HaMelech was a king, right? Shlomo HaMelech was a king. He built the first base of English. And the Pasuk describes how in his reign, the Pasuk says in Sefer Moachim, that he was so brilliant and amazing that all the nations around were hearing things about Shlomo HaMelech, right? And they would send uh, delegations to Shlomo HaMelech to, to hear about him and so on. It's well known that the Malchus Shiva, the, the queen of Sheba, she came, the Pasuk describes that she, she was a big person at the time, and she comes to Shlomo HaMelech and she's so infatuated and so amazed with his wisdom. And Shlomo HaMelech had has has, uh, has has connections to all these people. What was Shlomach doing? What's uh, you know? There, there was a purpose for this. This was a a taste of Plan A. The Plan A is that we we are who we are in our place, and everyone else, the Malchus of Hashem is established globally by the globe coming to us, and not moving to Israel. That's not the point. But the point is coming to us, learning about it, seeing what's going on, and then heading back home and having their lives changed because of it. That's Plan A. <clears throat> the problem is, is that if we're not good kalas, or we're not as good, we're not, we're not as good yidin as we're supposed to be in terms of our personal bond with God, and we're not glowing with light, a very big flame will attract a lot of moths. A little tiny flame is not going to do it. So you know what now, so, so, so 
the problem is that we're, we, maybe we're not the best boys and girls as we should be, as a people and as individuals. So now the Rebbe says, Golas. What is Golas? Golas is not a punishment. Golas is, now you have to take the show on the road. Now you have to take the show on the road. Now you have to go from place to place and actually, and actually interact and interface with the nations of the world. And by doing so, what you're doing is actively establishing the Malchus of Hashem in all these far-flung places. So it's not, Golis is not just the punishment stamp. Golis is, again, trying to accomplish the same mission as always, which is Lasakin Oilam B'Malchus Shakai. But just there's a plan A of how to do that, which is that we stay put and everything is affected automatically by coming to us and, and having that sort of magnetic pull. But if we're not living up to our own standards and our own abilities, then that then we can't then we're not accomplishing with that. So then we have no choice. But again, like I said, to take the show on the road and we go out there. But the very purpose of why Yidden find themselves in all different places and the reason why we're speaking English and so on, it's not a it's not a it's not a bidyeva. This is not like you know, just uh, to get us to do tshuva and then finally we can get back to the program. This is the program. The program is to establish the whole world as Malchus of Hashem. And one of the deepest and most significant ways to establish the world as Hashem's Malchus is by Yidin living amongst the nations of the world. And the nations of the world, hopefully, that's the plan, seeing Yidin behave as Yidin, and uh, us bringing morality and consciousness and, and a sense of dignity and, uh, and, and a godliness to the rest of the world around us through our interactions. And that's called establishing Hashem's Malchus. That's what Golas is supposed to be. Therefore, Gullus, again, although this, this, uh, you know, this, this strategy is a plan B, but it's still, it's still the top, it's still, it's still on the mark of what, what is supposed to be uh, being accomplished. Here's the problem, though. The, there's, there's a number of problems with this, or, or side, negative side effects that come. First of all, being thrown into chutzlaretz and the nations of the world so there's, there's issues that come with that. First of all, not everyone is interested in being uh, preached to. You know what I'm saying? And not, not everyone is so receptive to our messages. And so that causes friction. It's one thing if you're in your place and the moths come to you. Okay. But if you're going out to them, that's not always, not, not every door that you knock on is receptive, so to speak. And there's been nations and groups of nations, and that's a major part of our people's history in Golis, where there's uh, animosity and so on. And even Yemach Shemai, one of our biggest enemies in, the, you know, in Germany, so he, he said once in one of his, uh, his shmuzen, he said once that, that, that the Jewish people, what, the reason why he hates the Jewish people so much is because we brought circumcision to the body and consciousness to the mind. That now a person can't just because of the Jewish people. This is he, he's complaining, he's bemoaning this, but he, he was right that because of the Jewish people before us, they were just happy pagans running around in loincloths around totem poles and just killing each other and doing whatever they want without any guilt. All of a sudden, the Jewish people come in. Now there's a concept of heaven and hell, and there's a concept of 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 morality. We brought circumcision to the body and a conscience to the mind, and that's why a lot of the guy that are the, you know, the, 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 the dregs of society, like the Rosh over there, and all of his cohorts, they were not so receptive to our messages. So they caused problems. So that's one negative side effect of Gaulus, and that's certainly terrible. Another, maybe even just as tragic side effect is that what happens to the Jew that's being sent on this mission 
to establish the world under Hashem's Malchus, and he himself, or she herself, begins to forget their mission. And they become so caught up in the society that they're, they're really there, that they're really being sent there to change, and the society changes them, because the connection to the land and to who we are, essentially, is such a, is such a distance that we sort of get lost in that. You know, you become... Uh, you become, you, you, God forbid, a person can become lost in the nations that we're really, really sent to change and to affect. It's another negative side effect of Gaulus. Another, and the final, maybe, to a certain degree, maybe the most tragic is that even a Jew that does remember who they are, and a Jew maybe that's not being uh, attacked by the nations of the world in such a way. But the problem also with a Jew sometimes is, is that their relationship with God also just becomes one of king and subject. Who, who, would, who would, the relationship, the unique relationship between the, the God and the Jewish people is also a relationship that can become, can become lost. And very often the lang, there is no language for it, like I said, you know, there's no language for it. It's just, you know, it's like asking the shliach, what was it like being by the rabbi? There's no language for it. So what happens is, is that who we are supposed to be, even our personal relationship with Rabbi Shalom becomes clouded and becomes watered down through our interactions with the nation of the world, even when we're doing our job, even when we're, we're, when we're affecting the world and interacting with the world and changing them and giving them morality and dignity and, and so on. But that's also, it, 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 that, 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 the, the, the side effect is that, that, maybe, that it, it, maybe that also becomes who we think our relationship with God is. And that's also tragic. Comes Tishabov. Comes Tishabov. Comes the month of Av. And the month of Av establishes and, and reminds the Jewish people the following thing that this is not where you're supposed to be. That really, in truth, who we are and where we are is in Eretz Yisrael. And not only is that the place that we're deeply rooted in, that we should be deeply rooted in, but the type of relationship with God that we should be having is one of an Eretz relationship, one of light, one of one that can't be articulated. And the only type of, of God that, and, 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 and relationship to a God that can be articulated, that's down to earth, that's a, that's a type of, that's a God that we're trying to introduce the world to. But who is God to us? Inarticulable. What is Yiddishkeit to us? You should be able to explain to another person the beauty of Shabbos. So I'll give you an example. Again, we were in Vermont and we stopped by a, by a blueberry farm. And these guys, and the, the, the husband and wife in the blueberry farm, you know, they were, they were telling us, you know, they sell, they sell blueberry donuts and, you know, they're trying to get us to buy. Because I don't know how many customers they have traveling over there in the middle of nowhere. So, so we explained, you know, we, you know, we're Orthodox Jews, we eat kosher. And so, although everything is like organic and everything is super healthy, but it has to be uh, kosher products. And so they, they said to us, no, we totally understand. We're a seventh day, whatever it is that they, they keep, you know, things like that. Okay so, so, okay, so there's a certain common language, I guess you can say. They're obviously religious people and they take things seriously, so, they, so fine. And then, it's funny, you know, then I was speaking to the farmer and he's, uh, he was telling me, it's a funny, he was telling me that a lot of his friends tell him that, you know, you can make so much more parnasa if you're open on Shabbos. That's where so many customers come on, the, on, the, on Saturday, and you're being closed. Your mom is losing you. So he's sort of asking me for chizik. So, you know, so what am I going to tell him? I can't tell him, I can't tell him, no, you should keep Shabbos. He's not, you know, he's not like that. 
So I, I, I said, I said, listen, by us, we know and we believe, by us keeping the Sabbath, that's the source of blessing. So if you want to have a parnasa from Sunday to Friday, so if you have one day of the week called Saturday where you remind yourself of what's most important in life, to connect to your family, to connect to your Creator, that's where the blessing comes from. Yigachizik from is very nice. And I was telling you about the idea that before we eat anything, we make a bracha. By making a bracha, it reminds us of where the food comes from. It doesn't just come from the store. And as a farmer, he appreciated that. Is that what Shabbos is? Is that what a bracha is? The truth is, as I said the words, it was painful. That that's what Shabbos is. That Shabbos is this day that we could get good parnasa because if we keep Shabbos, and that's where the parnasa comes from. You make a bracha on a, on a food, it's to remind me that this doesn't come from a store. So there, the, I can't articulate what Shabbos is. I can't articulate what Shabbos is. For that farmer in the middle of uh, nowhere, Vermont, I could, I, I, to him, I have to find a way to communicate Shabbos. But the great tragedy is for a Jew to think that the words that are communicated to that farmer about Shabbos, that is Shabbos. That's, the, that's, called, that's a Jew in Golis. The, jo- the job of Tisha B'Av is to remind us, and the month of Av is to remind us, is that who you are and what Shabbos really is to you is inarticulable. It's not something that can be communicated. It's Eretz Yisrael Dik. It's, it's altogether something transcendent. So what are you here for? Why are you talking to farmers? Okay, because that's part of my job also, is to bring the whole world under Hashem's Malchus. And for the rest of the world, the king and, his, and, his, uh, and the system that he runs the world with should be articulated. But that's, but that, but that's, but that's not essentially who we are. The, the, the Indian of Tishabav is to remind the Jew that although you're in Chutzlaretz, although you're in the rest of the world, and in the rest of the world you're communicating verbally and articulating clearly what Shabbos is and what you can learn about making brachas and how being ethical and moral, all that stuff, and that's all exactly what the nations of the world need to hear, and that's how they become part of Hashem's Malchus. But Tisha B'Av reminds us is that that's all vis-a-vis the nations of the world. And that's all necessary to get them on board and to get them to be the best people they can become, which is necessary, and that's part of the big plan of Hashem. But who are you? You're a flame, you're a candle. You're a flame, you're a candle. You're just light itself. And just like when we were in Eretz Yisrael, the way plan A would have been is that we are just light. We are just light. Light doesn't have to communicate something. When, when you have a room that's dark and a candle is brought into the, wor- into the room, does the candle start yelling and screaming at darkness, get out of here? Does it start preaching, giving a whole schmooze, how really being light is better than being dark? It just automatically is light. It's just being its true self. The, in Eretz Yisrael, the way we would have been, who we are, the, the Yiddishkeit that's most authentic to the Jewish people is a Yiddishkeit of light. A Yiddishkeit that's not, that, that doesn't necessarily have any words to articulate. It just, it's just being its true self. And so that, so in our, plan A was that Klai Yisrael would be this unbelievably big bonfire and automatically everything would be taken care of. No, plan A didn't work out, so now we're in plan B. Plan B is now you're in Chutzlarts and you have to communicate, you have to talk, you have to articulate. And you have to talk to a blueberry farmer about what the seventh day, what Sabbath is about. But don't, don't make the mistake for one second that that's what Shabbos is. What is Shabbos? Light. So you have to talk to the farmer about what you can learn about making brachas and how making brachas reminds us not to take things for granted. That's what you communicate. But what is brachas? Light. 
And that's what Tisha B'Av reminds us of. Tisha B'Av reminds us that we're here, but, but everything that we articulate and everything that, we're, that we say in our, in our objective to change the world is truly not being authentic to who we are. It's not really expressing the truth. It can't. And there is no way to express the truth. This is why Tisha B'Av, it's an amazing thing. Tisha B'Av is a day that we're quiet. There's a halacha in Tisha B'Av that a Jew should be quiet on Tisha B'Av. You daven, you say, you say what you have to say, but otherwise you're quiet. Why? So one way to, to explain that superficially is like we're sad. So when you're sad, you, you become quiet. But on a deeper level, is that that silence of Tisha B'Av is, excel, is itself expressing, reinforcing the, 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 the most authentic version of what Yiddishkeit is for us. Because again, part of the... the, the Again, I don't know if I'm being clear, but the, 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 the difficulty of Gullus, the tragedy of Gullus is where Yiddishkeit becomes, where, where Yiddishkeit even to us becomes something that can be communicated. When, when the mistake is that that side of Yiddishkeit that is communicated, that's what we need for the guy. But for us, the Yiddishkeit has to be Yiddishkeit of silence, of just light. This is, let's go back to the story of B'nai Gadabriyuv and, and half of Benasha. <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu says, you be in Eretz Yisrael. Why? Not because he's neglecting the rest of the world. Moshe says, in Eretz Yisrael, you're going to be so on fire. And the fire that you're going to have in Eretz Yisrael, the light that you're going to have in Eretz Yisrael is going to be so intense that everyone is going to come to you. Comes Reuven, God in heaven, Menashe, and say, Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe that's for the rest of the Yidin. But we know who we're holding. We know what we are like. And we can't do that. For us to influence the rest of the world, we don't have such an intense light within ourselves. We have to actually be in Chutzlaretz. We are plan B, the Giyidin. And we have to be in Chutzlaretz to actually, inter- actually interface and interact and communicate with the rest of the world. But Moshe says, I hear you. And that's what it means that they have uh, cattle and so on. The fact that they had so much cattle was just another indicator to them that their mission in life is plan B, which is to actually be in Chutzlaretz and to deal with the nations of the world. And Moshe says to Reuven, going to have a Menasha, I hear you, that's okay. But I'm concerned. What am I concerned about? I'm concerned that in your mission of communicating verbally a Yiddish guy to the rest of the world and telling them what Sabbath is and how, to, and, and how it could give you good parnasa and making brachas reminds you not to take things for granted, I'm afraid that you yourselves are going to start buying into that. And you're going to start believing that that's what Shabbos is. And you're going to start believing that's what brachas are. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, therefore, if you want to be in Chutzlaretz, then you have to double down on your personal connection to the land itself. You have to double down on your personal commitment to believe that everything you're doing in Chutzlaretz is, you know, in this sort of watered-down version of Yiddishkeit, that's for them. But for you yourselves, light. And that's what he says to Reuven, God in half of Menashe, that what you're doing is the, communi- the communicative aspect of Yiddishkeit that you're embracing in your role in Chutzlaretz, that's your job, that's your mission. But who, within yourself, within you and God, Eretz Yisrael. This is why, going back, this is why the, the, the halachas of verbal conditions are learned from this story. Because the whole story is revolving around Yidin who are embracing their role of what? Of being in Chutzlaretz, Right? And the purpose of being in Chutzlaretz is to communicate, to, communicate, to articulate, to articulate a Yiddishkeit to the nations of the world, to get them to be on board with 
the Malchus of Hashem. Plan A would be we don't have to say anything. We're just so, the light is so intense that automatically they figure it out on their, on their own. No, Reuven, God, and Hef, and Menashe are saying we're not holding by such things, so we have to articulate it. But, but that articulation, that's for them. But for ourselves, we still have to reinforce that aspect of life. So the halachas of how to articulate things properly, it learned that from that story, because that's exactly what the story is about, of what a Jew is in Gauls. This is the month of Av. So the, the avoid of Tishabav and the avoid of the month of Av is to, is to reorient ourselves and to remind ourselves what it, who we are, what is Yiddishkeit in its most authentic Jewish version, what is the place on earth that's most conducive for that authentic relationship between us and God of Yiddishkeit, and what exactly is our role in Chutzlars. Because again, throughout the rest of the year, we get so caught up in just being in Chutzlaretz and the things that we have to do here, and even the good things that we have to do here. We get so caught up with that, we, we lose sight of the bigger picture of who we are and who we are vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Tishba is that time to remember, is that, every, number one, the entire world has to be brought under Hashem's malchus. But to understand that there's a very big difference between, between the type of relationship to God that the nations of the world have and have to be given, versus the relationship that we have with, with our Creator. The relationship that the rest of the world has is a relationship that can be articulated, can be explained, and you can explain what you learned, you know, what, Shab- what Sabbath can tell you about, and, and all that stuff. But who we are and our relationship with God is just light. And the fact that we have to, that we're forced into this position of having to articulate to the nations of the world and actually having to live amongst them and to show in a very tangible way, what it looks like to be a religious person, that's a plan B. It's, it's accomplishing something, but it fundamentally is plan B. This is the letter test. The letter test is that although there's that darkness of Gullus, but you have to remember, there's light within it. And the light that's within Gullus is that although it's not plan A, it's plan B, but by us existing in Gullus and going from place to place and interacting in different people, different ways, and being a friendly neighbor and all these types of things... And, and, and the, the nations of the world see this and interact with us, and they're able to say, oh, you know, Jews are moral, ethical, and they can begin to absorb these lessons within their own lives, that's an unbelievable light. That's an unbelievable purpose. But always to remember, that's in terms of you know, what, what, what they're able to absorb. Who, who is God to us, and what is Yiddishkeit to us? Can't be articulated. Just silence. Just the silence, just the light itself. And that's, that's the, 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 the funny relationship that a Jew has with God. So we have to remember that we're here, and we're here for a purpose, and never to uh, get, you know, first of all, for, not, never to forget that purpose, and never to, and never to uh, you know, sort of confuse that purpose with the, the purpose in terms of the rest of the world versus the, the, the relationship that we have, and the essence that we have with our Creator, Hashem Shabbos. We should be able to do this for our families as well. It's the same thing with our kids, you know. It might be difficult, it, it, you know, it, that flame of Yiddishkeit might have to be, you know, for the whole world to be drawn to us, that flame might have to be incredibly large. But for just our families, the flame doesn't have to be that big. The best way, to, the be, the, it, it, for, sometimes a person has no choice but to communicate morality and lessons you know, to the people, you know, to their family members. And that, that, that's a job that you have, to, you have to be able to communicate. But on the other hand, always to remember, 
is that it's it's through osmosis that's where the biggest lessons come from. Where the kids and the family just sort of pick up on just a light that's reverberating within you. That's that's the plan A, and so we have to be able to. Uh, if plan A is not in not in place in terms of the world, at least to try to make that in place in terms of our families, and you you become lichted, you become glowing with light, you know, effervescent, and then the rest of the, the rest of the family will follow, and from there the rest of the world will follow as Hashem. We should be zachet to only be able to uh, only 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 separate good things in Hashem. This tishabav should be uh, the light that's contained within tishabav should be fully revealed. Be called said they can hear every minute on me.